Hey everyone, and welcome to Theana Money, where we seek to help the good man leave an inheritance to his children's children. This is Jeremy, the host of Theana Money. Just an aside, in the last episode, I made a joke about how it was released on a Christmas Adam. Well, after that released over the Christmas weekend, my wife and I visited her grandmother, and there was a church near her grandmother's house it wasn't her church it was just this church near her house that we passed on the drive there and it had a sign out front this big sign saying christmas adam service and i just thought that was funny after making that joke on the podcast episode last time so this episode is addressing secular conservative economics by conservative economics there, I do not mean it like it often means today, which is hardly even conservative. I don't mean conservative there. We'll talk about the economics part in a moment, but I don't mean conservative there like it often means today. The definition of conservative today, at least as it applies by and large to the Republican Party, basically just means that we stand for whatever the Democrats stood for about a dozen years ago. And sometimes not even that long. And so therefore we are conservative because we're trying to conserve the things that the Democrats stood for a dozen years ago, not the crazy things that they stand for today. If you don't believe me on that, think about what the Republicans say today and the things that Democrats said not that long ago. As recently as the presidential race that led to President Obama's second term. Or maybe specifically think about homosexuality and transgenderism and how not that long ago, I mean, I'm in my 20s, and for me, in living memory, Democrats were against those things. And now Democrats are all for them and like probably half the Republicans, at least the ones in D.C. are as well. So that's why I think when people say that Republicans are getting more conservative and the Democrats are getting more left... When people like Albert Moeller say that on his podcast, The Briefing, that is wrong. Both of them are getting further and further left. But that is not what I mean by the word conservative in the title of this episode. I mean it more or less as biblical economics. Economics that any biblical economist, such as Gary North, Ronald Nash, R.J. Rushduni or Greg Bonson would, at least for the most part, agree with. But secular biblical economics does not sound good as a podcast title. It sounds like a contradiction in terms, so I did not name the ep- this episode that. And also, yes, I know those men, those four men that I just mentioned a moment ago, of them, North was probably the only one who was an economist in the truest sense of the term, but all four taught on biblical economics to some degree, and so 
I went ahead and listed those four men. So more or less, this is an episode about non-Christian economics that reflects what many would consider to be a Christian view of economics. In other words, men and women who, due to God's common grace, understand economics in ways that more or less are Christian understandings of economics, even if their worldviews cannot justify their conclusions. Now, before we go any further, I just wanted to ask you all, if you are not already subscribed to Theana Money on your favorite podcast catcher, please do that. Turn on the auto downloads and tell your friends about Theana Money. Follow it on social media, share the posts or retweet or whatever they're called on that specific social media site and send episodes, send links of episodes to your friends so they can check them out and learn more about what God's law has to say about economics. And if you feel so inclined, check out the bonfire page for Theana Money. There's a link in the description of the episodes and see if there are any cool t-shirts or hoodies or anything like that you want to buy to show off your love for God's word and God's law and the various other things that there are t-shirts on that page for. And also uh, one announcement, this is just an idea I had here recently. Um, As you all know, several months ago, I went from every week episodes to every other week to just give me more time to spend with my family. That was shortly before my wife gave birth to our first child. And, uh, you know, when I record these episodes, I put a lot of time and thought into them. I don't just like get an idea, spend two minutes thinking about it and start recording. I, you know, by the time all is said and done, I put hours into each episode. And so... It takes a lot of time. That's why I went to every other week. But I occasionally on the off weeks, the weeks I'm not doing episodes with Theana Money, I think not all the time. It's not going to be like every time, but maybe like once a month or something, kind of just sporadically whenever I feel like it and have the time to. I'm thinking about releasing some short episodes that are just more devotional in nature. So they really won't be like full on Theana Money episodes. In fact, when I release these uh, the plan right now is I'm not going to even count them in the numbering scheme. If you look, every episode of Theana Money has some kind of number at the beginning of it to track the episode numbers. And so instead of Theana Money's episode being like, you know, 076 for 76, 077, all of that, these would probably be their own numbering scheme. Um, I'm going to call them Redemptive Lens Episodes because... One that's just taken from the title of a blog that I used to do with some friends several years ago before I even had the thought of Theana Money. And so it'd just be like RL1 and then whatever passage of scripture I'm covering or something like that, RL2. So these would just be some shorter, more devotional, probably 10 minutes long, maybe sometimes not even that long of just... Mean like, hey, we're going to take a little bit to look at these handful of verses in Second Corinthians 1. That's probably going to be one of the earlier ones. And just take some time. I'm not going to put a ton of prep into those because otherwise that would defeat the purpose of doing uh, Theana Money every other week instead of every week. But a lot of times there'll just be some passage of scripture I'm familiar with. I've spent a lot of time in the past studying. And I just want to take like 5 or 10, maybe occasionally 15 minutes to just record something talking about it. And just release those occasionally on the off weeks where there's not a Theana Money episode. 
So if you just want the theonomy and economic stuff, you can just skip those episodes. Please keep the auto download on and just delete those or something. But I would really recommend listening to those that are more devotional in nature as well. Because if uh, we just want to study theonomy and jump into politics and study economics and jump into business, but we don't want to spend any time just studying scripture and uh, praying and trying to get, grow closer to God, then like, what are we doing? In fact, in some ways, that's kind of related to the episode of this podcast, trying to do the former without doing the latter. So yeah, I guess on that nature, I also recommend listening to Paul Washer sermons. Anyways, with all of that aside, first, let's talk about the good of secular conservative economics. It is better for a nation than corrupt economics. That is true. I would rather live in a nation with this type of economics than one like the United States right now or any of the other number of nations right now or in the recent past, which are much worse than the United States. So in that sense, secular conservative economics is good, but without Christianity, it still fails. Take Thomas Sowell, for example. He is great. I really appreciate him and his work. I've read several of his books, and Lord willing, I will make at least a couple of his books required reading for my children one day as part of their homeschool curriculum. At the very least, I'll probably have them read basic economics and black rednecks and white liberals, if not others as well. An entire nation of Thomas Souls would be better off than what we currently have, but not the ideal. Thomas Sowell and Walter Williams were very similar on many issues, but Walter Williams had a Christian foundation as a believer that told him why the ideas he proposed worked. In other words, Williams had an ultimate justification for the economics he proposed that Sowell does not have as an unbeliever no matter how much he sounds like a Christian when you read his books. In fact, that was what impressed me when I read a book that Ronald Nash wrote on economics several years ago. It was like reading Soul, if Soul was a Christian. And that was before I had discovered Gary North, who probably would have blown my mind if I had read some of his stuff at the time. There we can really see a difference between two people, or three if we compare Nash and Williams to Sowell, not just Williams to Sowell, who understand economics similarly, but the one side has a Christian foundation for the understanding that the other side does not. Thomas Sowell, for all my great respect for the man, is limited in how far he can go to explain why his ideas work. He can explain his ideas. He can, to some degree, even explain how they work. But as long as he is implicitly basing his ideas on Christian principles and foundations that he inherently has, in an Imago Dei, Romans 2, 14-15 sense, but cannot justify without coming to embrace Christianity, then he is limited in how far back he can go to explain why and how his principles work. At some point, they can easily just break down to pragmatism, 
they are best because if you look at all of the available alternatives, those are all worse and in some cases very worse. Now, if an unbeliever comes to economic ideas not too far off from yours or mine, from pure pragmatism, I would rather live in a nation ran by his ideas than one ran by leftist ideas like socialism, communism, and fascism. And yes, fascism is a leftist idea, no matter what propaganda you hear on the news these days. But pragmatism can only get you so far. We need to hope that future generations are smart enough to not decide worse paths, wrongly thinking they are better, or to hope that corrupt politicians will not intentionally mess things up in exchange for political favors or whatever other benefit it brings them. You know, the bad of the many for the good of the me. The bad of the many for the good of the me. So on an epistemological level, secular conservative economics, no matter how much it resembles a truly Christian understanding of economics, fails to justify the presuppositions it is built upon. For them, the presuppositions are just assumed because, well, they probably cannot explain why. We know it is because of the work of the law written in their heart, as I just said, if you feel inclined to call that immediate understanding natural theology, then call it what you will. Whatever you call it, it is different from the Christian who, standing on God's word, can justify his presuppositions because they are rooted in God via his infallible and inerrant revelation in scripture. But epistemology is not the only reason why Christian economics is better than secular conservative economics, though that is an important reason. It goes beyond just the philosophy behind the economics because, as I just said, you never know what future generations will do. At least make them need to reject scripture to reject good economics, and not just reject good economics for some other reason. But anyways, that is not the only reason that Christian economics is better. Secular conservative economics would, despite all of the blessings of living to some degree in accord with the created order of God's world, still miss the blessings of God that come to nations obedient to him. Secular conservative economics merely recognizes the order God put into the world but in doing so, misses the creator for the orderliness. You need to recognize both. You need to recognize the giver behind the gifts, whether gifts he directly gives or gifts that he made as part of the way the world operates. And there are blessings for recognizing the giver and being faithful to God as a Christian economist rather than an unbelieving, secular economist, no matter how good his or her economics are. This is not prosperity gospel. It is just reading the Bible at its word and not going to the opposite ditch on the other side of the highway from the prosperity gospel. I think there are some truths that nations that obey and honor God 
are blessed in a way that nations that do not obey and recognize God, no matter how good their economics, will not be. Once again, this is not prosperity gospel. This is not becoming a Christian just because of what it brings you or sowing a seed of faith to some huckster because he promised you, he lied as he said it, but he did promise you, that God will give you 100-fold here and now of what you give him. Him, they're referring to the huckster, not to God, lowercase h. This is just recognizing several passages of scripture. In my opinion, Psalm 2 is first and foremost among them, though I might be biased because I love that psalm so much. Psalm 2 says that nations that disobey Christ will be crushed. Even if nations that obey Christ receive no special blessing from it, they are not crushed, so they are better off in that sense. But I do think we can go further than that and say that God will honor nations that honor him. It is not to say that every nation today is akin to Old Testament Israel and has the same covenant with God that Old Testament Israel had with him. But I think there are curses for disobedience and blessings for obedience for all nations, though those will probably not be quite as spectacular as those for ancient Israel were. Just look at the nations around Old Testament Israel that were cursed and destroyed for their disobedience. Try to tell Nineveh 100 years after Jonah when they went back to their paganism and God destroyed them, that God only does stuff like that to Israel, not to other nations. To bring up an example that one of my teachers in high school liked to mention, compare the United States to India. Both have similar histories of being prior British Empire colonies. Both have many natural resources, but one was Christian at the beginning though that seems to be mostly gone now, and the other was pagan. Could we not say that the Christian faith is a large factor in why the U.S. has become so much more powerful than India in the last 250 years? I think we can very much say that results of the Christian faith, such as the freedom it brings, the Protestant work ethic, the responsibility to provide for one's family as a man, the desire to help those who are in difficult circumstances get back on their feet, and things like that helped the U.S. to get to a place of preeminence in the world scene. Also, natural disasters such as storms, earthquake, etc., those do much to set back the economy of a nation as Many people lose much, if not all, of their possessions and possibly even their lives. Christian stewardship of their surroundings can help to minimize these natural disasters as much as possible in a fallen world. Don't believe me? Think about how many natural disasters are not quite as natural as we might imagine. How many might technically be forces of nature but were helped along by the foolishness of man. Right now, I'm thinking particularly here of the dust bowl that was caused by over-farming and not leaving lines of trees between fields to retain soil and minimize wind, though any number of examples could be given with enough thought and some Google, or I mean DuckDuckGo searches. 
Before going further, we can stop and compare Christian economics to secular conservative economics here. Christian economics has the totality of the Christian worldview behind it. It is not merely just a Christian approach to economics, but a Christian approach to all of the things I just listed. Taking care of one's family, care for the poor, care for the land God has given you to take dominion over, and the Protestant work ethic. While many secular conservative economists recognize some or all of those things, as I've already said, Christians have a reason to do so. More than that, because we know that Christians are not perfectly sanctified until glory and no amount of having good epistemological justification for your beliefs will change that, Christians are regenerated and have the Holy Spirit indwelling us to lead us to do these things, to give us the grace and the strength to do these things with true compassion and heart change, not just behavior modification to grind our teeth and do the things we do not want to do because we know that those things are the right things to do. That idea of behavior modification versus true heart change is a focus in the biblical counseling movement, and it is relevant to this discussion because only believers can have heart change. The best unbelievers can do is behavior modification because they do not experience regeneration and they do not have the Holy Spirit indwelling them. That heart change, that sanctification leads to doing these things from the heart. These Christian virtues that can help facilitate economic prosperity in a nation. Christians ought to do these things and should be doing them more and more as they grow in sanctification, whether or not they have the potential to increase economic prosperity. Obedience just to obey our King and Sovereign and the benefit the benefits of that obedience is just icing on the cake to obeying God because he created a world where obedience, logically, in the created order, tends to have benefits. Unbelievers can do these things because of the work of the law written in their hearts in a Romans 2, 14-15 sense. Not the law written on their hearts, which is only for believers, referring back to Jeremiah, but the work of the law written in their hearts, more like the conscience that Paul talks about in Romans 2. And because of that, they are made in the image of God, and if nothing else, for purely pragmatic reasons, unbelievers too do these things that have benefits for society and economics. But there is a difference between the obedience of reprobates and the obedience of believers. Because God made this world with certain cause and effect relationships to certain actions where certain sinful actions have logical causal repercussions and certain good deeds have logical causal benefits, then even when secular unbelieving conservative economists propose good ideas, it will benefit the nation that accepts them by and large. But the benefits are limited because it is still the obedience of reprobates which is not pleasing to God, because whatever is not done from faith is sin, and an unbeliever is incapable of doing a single thing from faith because he is, by definition, without faith. The obedience of unbelievers will only get them so far. 
They cannot work their way into a right relationship with God. They cannot even take God's temporal blessings by force as they please. A nation that by and large rejects God and shows its rejection of God and its laws and policies will suffer consequences of that, no matter how close their economics might be to biblical precepts. God punishes and judges nations for disobedience to him and his law. Not just Israel, but other nations. Ask the Amalekites and Jebusites and Canaanites and all the other ites in the Old Testament that got wiped out, or nearly so, for their sin if God judges nations for sins besides just Israel. Ask those nations that, especially the ones that were wiped out, like, you know, around the time of the giving of the Mosaic Law, so they didn't even have the Mosaic Law given to them. It does not matter how great the economics of your nation is if God decides to judge it. The United States agricultural industry has all sorts of problems, many of them indirectly or directly related to government involvement in agriculture. But even if our agriculture industry was as ideal as could be in a secular nation in a fallen world, if God brings drought or locusts or some other calamity, it will take a serious blow that could be life-threatening for many people. No amount of good economics can help us to wave off and push aside God's judgment of a nation for its sin. Just about every industry in the United States has, in some way or another, become dependent on reliable sources of electricity. So a power grid shutdown of days or weeks on end by whatever means God decided to send it would wreak havoc on pretty much any industry. Our good economics will not do much to protect us if God decided to judge us as a nation. On the flip side, I believe that obedience to God does bring some sort of blessing to nations on the national level. I think this is true not just in the logical, causal way that God made the world to work sense I've already talked about, but in a divine sense. God pulls back some of the things like natural disasters on the nation that obeys him. This does not mean that they never experience anything like that. That might be a prosperity gospel view of this, where they would claim something like that. But you can look at places like Kenya in the last decade or two, and the natural disasters they had before and after we started seeing growth of the church and revival there. Not growth of some heretical cult, but growth of true Christianity. And the natural disasters that nation goes through legitimately seems to be decreasing as the people's faith in Christ grows. So on this more divine, more spiritual level, Christian biblical economics has the benefit over secular conservative economics that it is inviting God's blessing, not God's curse. That does not mean that God has to bless the Christian nation that honors him with its economics. We cannot force God to do anything, no matter what we do. God gives and takes away by his good pleasure alone. However, God ordains the means, not just the ends. God ordains the means as well as the ends. So perhaps it is that he ordained the very obedience 
he will bless as a means to the end of his blessing. I mean, if we believe that God is sovereign and ordained all that will come to pass before he created the world, then to some degree we have to believe that. One last issue I want to address in this episode about the superiority of biblical economics over secular conservative economics, and one that is related to the epistemological point before, is that of parameters and guiding principle. Biblical economics has scripture as its guide. Scripture keeps it from getting weird and going off the rails. If Christians do get weird and go off the rails in the area of economics, someone is able to come up and bring biblical principles to bear in order to correct that person. This is exactly what happened with Ron Sider's book, Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger, and David Chilton's response to it, Productive Christians in an Age of Guilt Manipulators. By the way, in the future I plan to do a series of episodes that break down the issues with and fallacies within rich Christians, one chapter per episode. Secular conservative economics, on the other hand, has no perfect, inerrant, holy writ as their guide. Some of them might respect the Bible and draw principles from it, or have respect for what Christian men said. But if the Bible is not their ultimate standard of authority, they can go off from and contradict scripture whenever they decide that they disagree with it. In short, secular conservative economics has a flexible standard which is much more likely to change with the whims of culture than Christians who have the Bible as their standard and all matters of weight and importance do. And by the way, all matters of weight and importance means more than just how to get saved and includes many things such as economics. In summary, as many benefits as there are to secular conservative economics, and as much as I would rather live in a nation ran by guys like Thomas Sowell than I would live in any of the options available right now, it is nowhere near the beauty and God-glorifying majesty of a Christian nation with biblical economics. While that looks like an impossibility right now, I believe, in light of my post-millennial convictions, that it is only a matter of time until that is a reality, even if that matter of time is quite distant from us today. That was this week's episode of Theonomony. As we go, I want to remind everyone that the law of the Lord is perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, and true. So go apply that law and light of the gospel of Christ's atoning death and resurrection to every area of life. Grace and peace, friends. Satisfies me Your law is sweet Oh, you say